This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Stay calm with BunnySlippers.com. You know what will help? Retail therapy. Why not buy some Highland cow slippers from BunnySlippers.com? These woolly bulls will keep your feet feeling snug and, well, looking damn cool. I have to highly recommend them. Excuse the darn out there, you know. This is a family show, or at least this portion of The Feet is a Family Show. This is Black Clock Audio Tales, and I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. We're going to be going with the third book of the Oz series, second book to have Dorothy. And uh, you might recognize some of this. As if, uh, if you've watched Return to Oz, you'll recognize some elements of this movie. And just to let you know, we're going to have some other stuff going on this month. We're going to have some Dave's Underground Goat shenanigans. Of course, we have Articulate Warbling all the time. Zach and Laura are currently reviewing, I believe, It's a Quiet Place. So you can check that out if uh, you want to listen to some British people talk about A Quiet Place. You can always find out more about what's going on with PGTTCM by going to PGTTCM.com. Checking out our back catalog. You can go there to find out what's going on with Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, any of Dave's other corner of the podcast stuff, things I do with Ken Height, stuff that happens with Zach and Laura with Articulate Warbling, this show, of course, Black Clock Audio Tales. Find out what's going to be happening in the upcoming months, and of course... People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. The whole reason any of this even started. My show about the Cthulhu Mythos, where I generally have folks like David Heath or Ken Hyde or some other folk come on and talk about whatever it is we're talking about. And I believe we're talking about Envers and uh, some Clark Ashton Smith uh, this month in... Um, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. And of course, this month, we're talking about Frank L. Baum. Is that it? Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're talking about him and the Oz stories. We don't have any people going, hey, I'll talk about the Oz. If you want to talk about Oz books, if you are an Oz expert, if you love Oz so much, if you want to be like, hey, can I talk to you about the differences between the books and the movies? Like, hey, sure, send me something. You know, uh, and how do you send me something? Go to pgttcm.com and go to the contact us and remember if you want to let people know about this show go to the interwebs uh rate review subscribe wherever you do and follow us on facebook and instagram black clock audio tales pgttcm here's some book three uh ozma of oz TikTok, the machine man after an hour or so, most of the band of wheelers rolled back into the forest, leaving only three of their number to guard the hill. These curled themselves up like big dogs and pretended to go to sleep on the sands, but neither Dorothy nor Billina were fooled by this trick. So they remained in security among the rocks and paid no attention to their cunning enemies. Finally the hen, fluttering over the mound, exclaimed, "'Why, here's a path!' So Dorothy at once clambered to where Bellina sat, and there, sure enough, was a smooth path cut between the rocks. It seemed to wind around the mound from top to bottom, like a corkscrew twisting here and there between the rough boulders, but always remaining level and easy to walk upon. Indeed, Dorothy wondered at first why the wheelers did not roll up this path. But when she followed it to the foot of the mound, she found that several big pieces of rock had been placed directly across the end of the way, thus preventing anyone outside from seeing it, and also preventing the wheelers from using it to climb up the mound. Then Dorothy walked back up the path, and followed it until she came to the very top of the hill, where a solitary round rock stood that was bigger than any of the others surrounding it. The path came to an end just beside this great rock, and for a moment it puzzled the girl to know why the path had been made at all. But the hen, who had been gravely following her around and was now perched upon a point of rock behind Dorothy, suddenly remarked, "'It looks something like a door, doesn't it?' "'What looks like a door?' inquired the child. "'Why that crack in the rock just facing you?' replied Bellina whose little round eyes were very sharp 
and seem to see everything. It runs up one side and down the other and across the top and the bottom. What does? Why, the crack. So I think it must be a door of rock, although I do not see any hinges. Oh, yes, said Dorothy, now observing for the first time the crack in the rock. And isn't this a keyhole, Bellina? Pointing to a round, deep hole at one side of the door. Of course, if we only had the key, now we could unlock it and see what is there, replied the yellow hen. Maybe it's a treasure chamber full of diamonds and rubies, or heaps of shining gold, or— That reminds me, said Dorothy, of the golden key I picked up on the shore. Do you think that it would fit this keyhole, Billina? Try it and see, suggested the hen. So Dorothy searched in the pocket of her dress and found the golden key and when she had put it into the hole of the rock and turned it, a sudden sharp snap was heard, then with a solemn creak that made the shivers run down the child's back, the face of the rock fell outward, like a door on hinges, and revealed a small dark chamber just inside. "'Good gracious!' cried Dorothy, shrinking back as far as the narrow path would let her. For, standing within the narrow chamber of rock, was the form of a man, or at least it seemed like a man in the dim light. He was only about as tall as Dorothy herself, and his body was round as a ball, and made out of burnished copper. Also his head and limbs were copper, and these were joined or hinged to his body in a peculiar way with metal caps over the joints like the armor worn by knights in days of old. He stood perfectly still, and where the light struck upon his form it glittered as if made of pure gold. "'Don't be frightened,' called Bellina from her perch. "'It isn't alive.' "'I see it isn't,' replied the girl, drawing a long breath. "'It is only made out of copper, like the old kettle in the barnyard at home,' continued the hen, turning her head first to one side and then to the other so that both her little round eyes could examine the object. Once, said Dorothy, I knew a man made out of tin, who was a woodman named Nick Chopper. But he was as alive as we are, cause he was born a real man, and got his tin body a little at a time, first a leg and then a finger and then an ear, for the reason that he had so many accidents with his axe, and cut himself up in a very careless manner. Oh said the hen with a sniff, as if she did not believe the story. "'But this copper man,' continued Dorothy, looking at it with big eyes, "'is not alive at all, and I wonder what it was made for, and why it is locked up in this queer place.' "'That is a mystery,' remarked the hen, twisting her head to arrange her wing feathers with her bill. Dorothy stepped inside the little room to get a back view of the copper man, and in this way discovered a printed card that hung between his shoulders, it being suspended from a small copper peg at the back of his neck. She unfastened this card and returned to the path, where the light was better, and sat herself down upon a slab of rock to read the printing. "'What does it say?' asked the hen curiously. Dorothy read the card aloud, spelling out the big words with some difficulty, and this is what she read. Smith and Tinkers, patent double-action, extra-responsive, thought-creating, perfect-talking, mechanical man, fitted with our special clockwork attachment, thinks, speaks, acts, and does everything but live, manufactured only at our works at Evna, land of Ev. All infringements will be promptly prosecuted according to law. How queer, said the yellow hen. Do you think that is all true, my dear? I don't know, answered Dorothy, who had more to read. Listen to this, Billina. Directions for using. For thinking, wind the clockwork man under his left arm, marked number one. For speaking, wind the clockwork man under his right arm, marked number two. For walking and action, wind clockwork in the middle of his back, marked number three. In B, this mechanism is guaranteed to work perfectly for a thousand years. "'Well, I declare,' gasped the yellow hen in amazement, "'if the copper man can do half of these things, "'he is a very wonderful machine. 
but I suppose it is all humbug like so many other patented articles. We might wind him up, suggested Dorothy, and see what he'll do. Where is the key to the clockwork? asked Billina. Hanging on the peg where I found the card. Then, said the hen, let us try him and find out if he will go. He is warranted for a thousand years, it seems, but we do not know how long he has been standing inside this rock. Dorothy had already taken the clock key from the peg. Which shall I wind up first? she asked, looking again at the directions on the cord. Number one, I should think, returned Billina. That makes him think, doesn't it? Yes, said Dorothy, and wound up number one under the left arm. He doesn't seem any different, remarked the hen critically. Why, of course not. He is only thinking now, said Dorothy. I wonder what he is thinking about. I'll wind up his talk, and then perhaps he can tell us, said the girl. So she wound up number two, and immediately the clockwork man said, without moving any part of his body except his lips, Good morning, little girl. Good morning, Mrs. Hen. The words sounded a little hoarse and creaky, and they were uttered all in the same tone, without any change of expression whatever, but both Dorothy and Billina understood them perfectly. Good morning, sir, they answered politely. Thank you for rescuing me, continued the machine in the same monotonous voice, which seemed to be worked by a bellows inside of him, like the little toy lambs and cats the children squeeze so that they will make a noise. Don't mention it, answered Dorothy, and then, being very curious, she asked, How did you come to be locked up in this place? It is a long story, replied the copper man, but I will tell it to you briefly. I was purchased from Smith and Tinker, my manufacturers, by a cruel king of Ev, named Ev Aldo, who used to beat all his servants until they died. However, he was not able to kill me because I was not alive, and one must first live in order to die, so that all his beating did me no harm and merely kept my copper body well polished. The cruel king had a lovely wife and ten beautiful children, five boys and five girls, but in a fit of anger he sold them all to the gnome king, who by means of his magic arts changed them all into other forms and put them in his underground palace to ornament the rooms. Afterward, the king of Ev regretted his wicked action and tried to get his wife and children away from the gnome king, but without a veil. So in despair he locked me in this rock, threw the key into the ocean, and then jumped in after it and was drowned. How very dreadful! exclaimed Dorothy. It is indeed, said the machine. When I found myself imprisoned, I shouted for help until my voice ran down, and then I walked back and forth in this little room until my action ran down, and then I stood still and thought until my thoughts ran down. After that I remember nothing until you wound me up again. It's a very wonderful story, said Dorothy and proves that the land of Ev is really a fairyland, as I thought it was. Of course it is, answered the copper man. I do not suppose such a perfect machine as I am could be made in any place but a fairyland. I've never seen one in Kansas, said Dorothy. But where did you get the key to unlock this door? asked the clockwork voice. I found it on the shore, where it was probably washed up by the waves, she answered. And now, sir, if you don't mind, I'll wind up your action. That will please me very much, 
said the machine. So she wound up number three, and at once the copper man, in a somewhat stiff and jerky fashion, walked out of the rocky cavern, took off his copper hat, and bowed politely, and then kneeled before Dorothy. Said he, From this time forth I am your obedient servant. Whatever you command that I will do willingly, if you keep me wound up. What is your name? she asked. Tick-tock, he replied. My former master gave me that name because my clockwork always ticks when it is wound up. I can hear it now, said the yellow hen. So can I, said Dorothy. And then she added, with some anxiety, You don't strike, do you? No, answered Tick-Tock. And there is no alarm connected with my machinery. I can tell the time, though, by speaking, and as I never sleep, I can waken you at any hour you wish to get up in the morning. That's nice, said the little girl. Only I never wish to get up in the morning. You can sleep until I lay my egg, said the yellow hen. Then when I cackle, Tick-Tock will know it is time to waken you. Do you lay your egg very early? asked Dorothy. About eight o'clock, said Bellina, and everyone ought to be up by that time, I'm sure. End of chapter four. Dorothy opens the dinner pail. Now, Tick-Tock, said Dorothy, the first thing to be done is to find a way for us to escape from these rocks. The wheelers are down below, you know, and threaten to kill us. There is no reason to be afraid of the wheelers, said Tick-Tock, the words coming more slowly than before. Why not? she asked. Because they are he gave a sort of gurgle and stopped short, waving his hands frantically, until suddenly he became motionless, with one arm in the air and the other held stiffly before him with all the copper fingers of the hand spread out like a fan. "'Dear me!' said Dorothy in a frightened tone. "'What can the matter be?' "'He's run down, I suppose,' said the hen calmly. "'You couldn't have wound him up very tight.' I don't know how much to wind him, replied the girl, but I'll try to do better next time. She ran around the copper man to take the key from the peg at the back of his neck, but it was not there. It's gone, cried Dorothy in dismay. What's gone? asked Billina. The key. It probably fell off when he made that low bow to you, returned the hen. Look around and see if you cannot find it again. Dorothy looked and the hen helped her, and by and by the girl discovered the clock key, which had fallen into a crack of the rock. At once she wound up Tick-Tock's voice, taking care to give the key as many turns as it would go around. She found this quite a task, as you may imagine, if you have ever tried to wind a clock. But the machine man's first words were to assure Dorothy that he would now run for at least twenty-four hours. "'You did not wind me much at first, he calmly said. "'And I told you that long story about King Evoldo, "'so it is no wonder that I ran down.' She next rewound the action clockwork, and then Bellina advised her to carry the key to Tick-Tock in her pocket so it would not get lost again. "'And now,' said Dorothy, when all this was accomplished, "'tell me what you were going to say about the wheelers.' "'Why, they are nothing to be frightened at,' said the machine. "'They try to make folks believe they are very terrible, "'but as a matter of fact the wheelers are harmless enough "'to any one that dares to fight them. "'They might try to hurt a little girl like you, perhaps, "'because they are very mischievous. "'But if I had a club,' They would run away as soon as they saw me. Haven't you a club? asked Dorothy. No, said Tick-Tock. And you won't find such a thing among these rocks either, declared the yellow hen. Then what shall we do? asked the girl. Wind up my think works tightly, 
and I will try to think of some other plan, said Tick-Tock. So Dorothy rewound his thought machinery, and while he was thinking, she decided to eat her dinner. Billina was already pecking away at the cracks in the rocks to find something to eat, so Dorothy sat down and opened her tin dinner pail. In the cover she found a small tank that was full of very nice lemonade. It was covered by a cup which might also, when removed, be used to drink the lemonade from. Within the pail were three slices of turkey, two slices of cold tongue, some lobster salad, four slices of bread and butter, a small custard pie, an orange, and nine large strawberries, and some nuts and raisins. Singularly enough, the nuts in this dinner pail grew already cracked, so that Dorothy had no trouble in picking out their meats to eat. She spread the feast upon the rock beside her and began her dinner, first offering some of it to Tick-Tock, who declined because, as he said, he was merely a machine. Afterwards she offered to share with Bellina, but the hen murmured something about dead things and said she preferred her bugs and ants. "'Do the lunch-box trees and the dinner-pail trees belong to the wheelers?' the child asked Tick-Tock, while engaged in eating her meal. "'Of course not,' he answered. "'They belong to the royal family of Ev. Only, of course, there is no royal family just now, because King Ev-Oldo jumped into the sea, and his wife and ten children have been transformed by the Gnome King.' So there is no one to rule the land of Ev that I can think of. Perhaps it is for this re-son that the wheelers claim the trees for their own and pick the luncheons and dinners to eat themselves. But they belong to the king, and you will find the royal E stamped up on the bottom of every dinner pail. Dorothy turned the pail over and at once discovered the royal mark upon it as Tick-Tock had said. "'Are the wheelers the only folks living in the land of Ev?' inquired the girl. "'No, they only inhabit a small portion of it just back of the woods,' replied the machine. "'But they have always been mischievous and impertinent, and my old master, King Evoldo, used to carry a whip with him when he walked out to keep the creatures in order. When I was first made, the wheelers tried to run over me and butt me with their heads, but they soon found I was built of too solid a material for them to injure. You seem very durable, said Dorothy. Who made you? The firm of Smith and Tinker in the town of Evna, where the royal palace stands, answered Tick-Tock. Did they make many of you? asked the child. No, I am the only automatic mechanical man they ever completed, he replied. They were very wonderful inventors, were my makers, and quite artistic in all they did. I'm sure of that, said Dorothy. Do they live in the town of Ebna now? They are both gone, replied the machine. Mr. Smith was an artist as well as an inventor, and he painted a picture of a river which was so natural that as he was reaching across it to paint some flowers on the opposite bank, he fell into the water and was drowned. Oh, I'm sorry for that, exclaimed the little girl. Mr. Tinker, continued Tick-Tock, made a ladder so tall that he could rest the end of it against the moon while he stood on the highest rung and picked the little stars to set in the points of the king's crown. But when he got to the moon, Mr. Tinker found it such a lovely place that he decided to live there. 
so he pulled up the ladder after him, and we have never seen him since. He must have been a great loss to this country, said Dorothy, who was by this time eating her custard pie. He was, acknowledged Tick-Tock, and he is a great loss to me, for if I should get out of order, I do not know of any one able to repair me, because I am so complicated. You have no idea how full of machinery I am. I can imagine it, said Dorothy readily. And now, continued the machine, I must stop talking and begin thinking again of a way to escape from this rock. So he turned halfway around in order to think without being disturbed. The best thinker I ever knew, said Dorothy to the yellow hen, was a scarecrow. Nonsense, snapped Billina. It is true, declared Dorothy. I met him in the land of Oz, and he traveled with me to the city of the great wizard of Oz, so as to get some brains, for his head was only stuffed with straw. But it seemed to me that he thought just as well before he got his brains as he did afterward. "'Do you expect me to believe all that rubbish about the land of Oz?' inquired Billina, who seemed a little cross, perhaps because bugs were scarce. "'What rubbish?' asked the child, who was now finishing her nuts and raisins. "'Why, your impossible stories about animals that can talk, and a tin woodman who is alive, and a scarecrow who can think.' "'They are all there,' said Dorothy, "'for I have seen them.' "'I don't believe it,' cried the hen, with a toss of her head. "'That's cause you're so ignorant,' replied the girl, who was a little offended at her friend Bellina's speech. "'In the land of Oz,' remarked Tick-Tock, turning toward them, "'anything is possible, for it is a wonderful fairy country.' "'There, Bellina, what did I say?' cried Dorothy. And then she turned to the machine and asked in an eager tone, "'Do you know the land of Oz, Tick-Tock?' "'No, but I have heard about it,' said the copper man. "'For it is only separated from this land of Ev by a broad desert.' Dorothy clapped her hands together delightedly. "'I'm glad of that,' she exclaimed. "'It makes me quite happy to be so near my old friends. "'The scarecrow I told you of, Belina, is the king of the land of Oz.' "'Pardon me. He is not the king now,' said Tick-Tock. "'He was when I left there,' declared Dorothy. "'I know,' said Tick-Tock. "'But there was a revolution in the land of Oz.' and the scarecrow was deposed by a soldier woman named General Ginger, and then Ginger was deposed by a little girl named Ozma, who was the rightful heir to the throne, and now rules the land under the title of Ozma of Oz. That is news to me, said Dorothy thoughtfully. "'But I suppose lots of things have happened since I left the land of Oz. "'I wonder what has become of the Scarecrow, and of the Tin Woodman, and the Cowardly Lion. "'And I wonder who this girl Ozma is, for I never heard of her before.' "'But Tick-Tock did not reply to this. "'He had turned around again to resume his thinking. "'Dorothy packed the rest of the food back into the pail, so as not to be wasteful of good things.' and the yellow hen forgot her dignity far enough to pick up all the scattered crumbs, which she ate greedily, although she had so lately pretended to despise the things that Dorothy preferred as food. By this time Tick-Tock approached them with his stiff bow. "'Be kind enough to follow me,' he said, "'and I will lead you away from here to the town of Evna, where you will be more comfortable.' and also I will protect you from the wheelers. All right, answered Dorothy promptly. I'm ready. End of chapter 5「The Heads of Languideer They walked slowly down the path between the rocks, Tick-Tock going first, Dorothy following him, and the yellow hen trotting along last of all. 
At the foot of the path the copper man leaned down and tossed aside with ease the rocks that encumbered the way. Then he turned to Dorothy and said, Let me carry your dinner pail. She placed it in his right hand at once, and the copper fingers closed firmly over the stout handle. Then the little procession marched out upon the level sands. As soon as the three-wheelers who were guarding the mound saw them, they began to shout their wild cries and rolled swiftly toward the little group, as if to capture them or bar their way. But when the foremost had approached near enough, Tick-Tock swung the tin dinner-pail and struck the wheeler a sharp blow over its head with the queer weapon. Perhaps it did not hurt very much, but it made a great noise, and the wheeler uttered a howl and tumbled over upon its side. The next minute it scrambled to its wheels and rolled away as fast as it could go, screeching with fear at the same time. "'I told you they were harmless,' began Tick-Tock, but before he could say more another wheeler was upon them. Crack! went the dinner-pail against its head, knocking its straw hat a dozen feet away. And that was enough for this wheeler also. It rolled away after the first one, and the third did not wait to be pounded with the pail, but joined its fellows as quickly as its wheels could whirl. The yellow hen gave a cackle of delight, and, flying to a perch upon Tick-Tock's shoulder, she said, "'Bravely done, my copper friend, and wisely thought of, too. Now we are free from those ugly creatures.' But just then a large band of wheelers rolled from the forest, and, relying upon their numbers to conquer, they advanced fiercely upon Tick-Tock. Dorothy grabbed Billina in her arms and held her tight, and the machine embraced the form of the little girl with his left arm, the better to protect her. Then the wheelers were upon them. Rocklety, bang, bang, went the dinner-pail in every direction, and it made so much clatter bumping against the heads of the wheelers that they were much more frightened than hurt, and fled in a great panic. All that is, except their leader. This wheeler had stumbled against another, and fallen flat upon his back, and before he could get his wheels under him to rise again, Tick-Tock had fastened his copper fingers into the neck of the gorgeous jacket of his foe, and held him fast. "'Tell your people to go away,' commanded the machine. The leader of the wheelers hesitated to give this order, so Tick-Tock shook him as a terrier dog does a rat, until the wheelers' teeth rattled together with a noise like hailstones on a window-pane. Then, as soon as the creature could get its breath, it shouted to the others to roll away, which they immediately did. "'Now,' said Tick-Tock, "'you shall come with us and tell me what I want to know.' "'You'll be sorry for treating me in this way,' whined the wheeler. "'I'm a terribly fierce person.' "'As for that,' answered Tick-Tock, "'I am only a machine and can not feel sorrow or joy.' no matter what happens but you are wrong to think yourself terrible or fierce why so asked the wheeler because no one else thinks as you do your wheels make you helpless to injure any one for you have no fists and cannot scratch or even pull hair nor have you any feet to kick with. All you can do is to yell and shout, and that does not hurt any one at all." The wheeler burst into a flood of tears, to Dorothy's great surprise. "'Now I and my people are ruined forever,' he sobbed, "'for you have discovered our secret. Being so helpless our only hope is to make people afraid of us by pretending we are very fierce and terrible, and riding in the sand warnings to beware the wheelers. Until now we have frightened everyone, but since you have discovered our weakness, our enemies will fall upon us and make us very miserable and unhappy." "'Oh, no!' exclaimed Dorothy, who was sorry to see this beautifully dressed wheeler so miserable. "'Tick-Tock will keep your secret and so will Bellina and I. Only you must promise 
not to try to frighten children any more if they come near to you. I won't, indeed I won't, promised the wheeler, ceasing to cry and becoming more cheerful. I'm not really bad, you know, but we have to pretend to be terrible in order to prevent others from attacking us. That is not exactly true, said Tick-Tock, starting to walk toward the path through the forest, and still holding fast to his prisoner, who rolled slowly along beside him. You and your people are full of mischief and like to bother those who fear you, and you are often impudent and disagreeable too. But if you will try to cure those faults, I will not tell any one how helpless you are. I'll try, of course, responded the wheeler eagerly, and thank you, Mr. Tick-Tock, for your kindness. I am only a machine, said Tick-Tock. I cannot be kind any more than I can be sorry or glad. I can only do what I am wound up to do. Are you wound up to keep my secret? asked the wheeler anxiously. Yes, if you behave yourself. But tell me, who rules the land of Ev now? asked the machine. There is no ruler, was the answer, because every member of the royal family is imprisoned by the Gnome King. But the Princess Languideer who is the niece of our late King Evaldo, lives in a part of the royal palace and takes as much money out of the royal treasury as she can spend. The Princess Languideer is not exactly a ruler, you see, because she doesn't rule, but she is the nearest approach to a ruler we have at present. I do not remember her, said Tick-Tock. What does she look like? That I cannot say, replied the wheeler although I have seen her twenty times, for the Princess Languideer is a different person every time I see her, and the only way her subjects can recognize her at all is by means of a beautiful ruby key which she always wears on a chain attached to her left wrist. When we see the key, we know we are beholding the Princess." "'That is strange,' said Dorothy in astonishment. Do you mean to say that so many different princesses are one and the same person?" "'Not exactly,' answered the wheeler. "'There is, of course, but one princess. But she appears to us in many forms, which are all more or less beautiful.' "'She must be a witch,' exclaimed the girl. "'I do not think so,' declared the wheeler. "'But there is some mystery connected with her nevertheless. She is a very vain creature and lives mostly in a room surrounded by mirrors, so that she can admire herself whichever way she looks." No one answered this speech, because they had just passed out of the forest, and their attention was fixed upon the scene before them. A beautiful vale, in which were many fruit-trees and green fields, with many pretty farmhouses scattered here and there, and broad smooth roads that led in every direction. All these details Dorothy was, of course, unable to notice or admire until they had advanced along the road to a position quite near the palace, and she was still looking at the pretty sights when her little party entered the grounds and approached the big front door of the king's own apartments. To their disappointment they found the door tightly closed. A sign was tacked to the panel which read as follows. Owner absent. Please knock at the third door in the left wing. Now, said Tick-Tock to the captive wheeler, you must show us the way to the left wing. Very well, agreed the prisoner. It's around here, at the right. How can the left wing be at the right? demanded Dorothy, who feared the wheeler was fooling them. Because there used to be three wings, and two were torn down, so the one on the right is the only one left. It is a trick of the Princess Languideer to prevent visitors from annoying her." Then the captive led them around to the wing, after which the machine-man, having no further use of the wheeler, permitted him to depart and rejoin his fellows. He immediately rolled away at a great pace, and was soon lost to sight. 
Tick-Tock now counted the doors in the wing and knocked loudly upon the third one. It was opened by a little maid in a cap trimmed with gay ribbons, who bowed respectively and asked, "'What do you wish, good people?' "'Are you the Princess Languideer?' asked Dorothy. "'No, miss, I am her servant,' replied the maid. "'May I see the Princess, please?' "'I will tell her you are here, miss, and ask her to grant you an audience,' said the maid. "'Step in, please, and take a seat in the drawing-room.' So Dorothy walked in, followed closely by the machine. But as the yellow hen tried to enter after them, the little maid cried, "'Shoo!' and flapped her apron in Bellina's face. "'Shoo yourself!' retorted the hen, drawing back in anger and ruffling up her feathers. "'Haven't you any better manners than that?' "'Oh, do you talk?' inquired the maid, evidently surprised. "'Can't you hear me?' snapped Billina. "'Drop that apron and get out of the doorway so that I may enter with my friends.' "'The princess won't like it,' said the maid, hesitating. "'I don't care whether she likes it or not,' replied Billina, and fluttering her wings with a loud noise she flew straight at the maid's face. The little servant at once ducked her head, and the hen reached Dorothy's side in safety. "'Very well,' sighed the maid. "'If you are all ruined because of this obstinate hen, don't blame me for it. It isn't safe to annoy the Princess Languideer.' "'Tell her we are waiting, if you please,' Dorothy requested with dignity. "'Billina is my friend, and must go wherever I go.' Without more words, the maid led them to a richly furnished drawing-room, lighted with subdued rainbow tints that came in through beautiful stained-glass windows. "'Remain here,' she said. "'What names shall I give the princess?' "'I am Dorothy Gale of Kansas,' replied the child. "'And this gentleman is a machine named Tick-Tock, and the yellow hen is my friend Billina.' The little servant bowed and withdrew, going through several passages and mounting two marble stairways before she came to the apartments occupied by her mistress. Princess Languideer's sitting-room was paneled with great mirrors, which reached from the ceiling to the floor. Also the ceiling was composed of mirrors, and the floor was of polished silver that reflected every object upon it. So, when Languideer sat in her easy chair and played soft melodies upon her mandolin, her form was mirrored hundreds of times in walls and ceilings and floor, and whichever way the lady turned her head, she could see and admire her own features. This she loved to do, and just as the maid entered, she was saying to herself, "'The head with the auburn hair and hazel eyes is quite attractive.' I must wear it more often than I have done of late, although it may not be the best of my collection. You have company, your highness, announced the maid, bowing low. Who is it? asked Languideer, yawning. Dorothy Gale of Kansas, Mr. Tick-Tock, and Billina, answered the maid. What a queer lot of names, murmured the princess, beginning to be a little interested. What are they like? Is Dorothy Gale of Kansas pretty? She might be called so the maid replied. "'And is Mr. Tick-Tock attractive?' continued the princess. "'That I cannot say, your highness, but he seems very bright. Will your gracious highness see them?' "'Oh, I may as well, Nanda. But I am tired admiring this head, and if my visitor has any claim to beauty, I must take care that she does not surpass me. So I will go to my cabinet and change to number seventeen which I think is my best appearance, don't you?" "'Your number seventeen is exceedingly beautiful,' answered Nanda, with another bow. Again the princess yawned. Then she said, "'Help me to rise.' So the maid assisted her to gain her feet, although Languideer was the stronger of the two. Then the princess slowly walked across the silver floor to her cabinet, leaning heavily at every step upon Nanda's arm. Now I must explain to you that the Princess Languideer had thirty heads, as many as there are days in the month, but of course she could only wear one of them at a time, because she had but one neck. These heads were kept in what she called her cabinet, 
which was a beautiful dressing-room that lay just between Languedere's sleeping chamber and the mirrored sitting-room. Each head was in a separate cupboard lined with velvet. The cupboards ran all around the sides of the dressing-room, and had elaborately carved doors with gold numbers on the outside and jeweled framed mirrors on the inside of them. When the princess got out of her crystal bed in the morning, she went to her cabinet, opened one of the velvet-lined cupboards, and took the head it contained from its golden shelf. Then, by the aid of the mirror inside the open door, she put on the head, as neat and straight as could be, and afterward called her maids to robe her for the day. She always wore a simple white costume that suited all the heads, for being able to change her face whenever she liked, the princess had no interest in wearing a variety of gowns, as have other ladies who are compelled to wear the same face constantly. Of course the thirty heads were in great variety, no two formed alike, but all being of exceeding loveliness. There were heads with golden hair, brown hair, rich auburn hair, and black hair, but none with gray hair. The heads had eyes of blue, of gray, of hazel, of brown, and of black, but there were no red eyes among them, and all were bright and handsome. The noses were Grecian, Roman, retrousse, and Oriental, representing all types of beauty, and the mouths were of assorted sizes and shapes, displaying pearly teeth when the heads smiled. As for dimples, they appeared in cheeks and chins, wherever they might be most charming, and one or two heads had freckles upon the face to contrast the better with the brilliancy of their complexion. One key unlocked all the velvet cupboards containing these treasures, a curious key carved from a single blood-red ruby, and this was fastened to a strong but slender chain which the princess wore around her left wrist. When Nanda had supported Languedere to a position in front of cupboard number seventeen, the princess unlocked the door with her ruby key, and, after handing head number nine, which she had been wearing, to the maid, she took number seventeen from its shelf and fitted it to her neck. It had black hair and dark eyes, and a lovely pearl and white complexion, and, when Languedere wore it, she knew she was remarkably beautiful in appearance. There was only one trouble with number seventeen. The temper that went with it, and which was hidden somewhere under the glossy black hair, was fiery, harsh, and haughty in the extreme, and it often led the princess to do unpleasant things which she regretted when she came to wear her other heads. But she did not remember this today, and went to meet her guests in the drawing-room with a feeling of certainty that she would surprise them with her beauty. However, she was greatly disappointed to find that her visitors were merely a small girl in a gingham dress, a copper man that would only go when wound up, and a yellow hen that was sitting contentedly in Languedere's best work-basket, where there was a china egg used for darning stockings. It may surprise you to learn that a princess ever does such a common thing as darn stockings, but if you will stop to think you will realize that a princess is sure to wear holes in her stockings the same as other people, only it isn't considered quite polite to mention the matter. Oh, said Languedere, slightly lifting the nose of number seventeen, I thought someone of importance had called. Then you are right, declared Dorothy. I'm a good deal of importance myself, and when Belina lays an egg she has the proudest cackle you ever heard. As for Tick-Tock, He's the stop, stop, commanded the princess, with an angry flash of her splendid eyes. How dare you annoy me with your senseless chatter? Why, you horrid thing, said Dorothy, who was not accustomed to being treated so rudely. The princess looked at her more closely. Tell me, she resumed, are you of royal blood? Better than that, ma'am, said Dorothy. I came from Kansas. Huh cried the princess scornfully. You are a foolish child, and I cannot allow you to annoy me. Run away, you little goose, and bother someone else. Dorothy was so indignant that for a moment she could find no words to reply. 
but she rose from her chair and was about to leave the room when the princess, who had been scanning the girl's face, stopped her by saying more gently, "'Come nearer to me.' Dorothy obeyed, without a thought of fear, and stood before the princess while Languideer examined her face with careful attention. "'You are rather attractive,' said the lady presently. "'Not at all beautiful, you understand. But you have a certain style of prettiness that is different from that of any of my thirty heads. So I believe I'll take your head and give you number twenty-six for it.' "'Well, I believe you won't,' exclaimed Dorothy. "'It will do you no good to refuse,' continued the princess, "'for I need your head for my collection, and in the land of Ev my will is law. I never have cared much for number twenty-six, and you will find that it is very little worn. Besides, it will do you just as well as the one you're wearing, for all practical purposes.' "'I don't know anything about your number twenty-six, and I don't want to,' said Dorothy firmly. I'm not used to taking cast-off things, so I'll just keep my own head." "'You refuse?' cried the princess, with a frown. "'Of course I do,' was the reply. "'Then,' said Languideer, "'I shall lock you up in a tower until you decide to obey me. Uh, Nanda,' turning to her maid, "'call my army.' Nanda rang a silver bell, and at once a big fat colonel in a bright red uniform entered the room followed by ten lean soldiers, who all looked sad and discouraged, and saluted the princess in a very melancholy fashion. "'Carry that girl to the North Tower and lock her up,' cried the princess, pointing to Dorothy. "'To hear is to obey,' answered the big red colonel, and caught the child by her arm. But at that moment Tick-Tock raised his dinner-pail, and pounded it so forcibly against the colonel's head that the big officer sat down upon the floor with a sudden bump, looking both dazed and very much astonished. "'Help!' he shouted, and the ten lean soldiers sprang to assist their leader. There was great excitement for the next few moments, and Tick-Tock had knocked down seven of the army, who were sprawling in every direction upon the carpet when suddenly the machine paused, with the dinner-pail raised for another blow, and remained perfectly motionless. "'My action has run down,' he called to Dorothy. "'Wind me up, quick!' She tried to obey, but the big colonel had by this time managed to get upon his feet again, so he grabbed fast hold of the girl, and she was helpless to escape. "'That is too bad,' said the machine. I ought to have run six hours longer at least, but I suppose my long walk and my fight with the wheelers made me run down faster than usual." "'Well, it can't be helped,' said Dorothy with a sigh. "'Will you exchange heads with me?' demanded the princess. "'No, indeed,' cried Dorothy. "'Then lock her up,' said Languideer to her soldiers and they led Dorothy to a high tower at the north of the palace, and locked her securely within. The soldiers afterward tried to lift Tick-Tock, but they found the machine so solid and heavy that they could not stir it. So they left him standing in the center of the drawing-room. "'People will think I have a new statue,' said Languideer, "'so it won't matter in the least, and Nanda can keep him well polished.' "'What shall we do with the hen?' asked the colonel, who had just discovered Bellina in the work-basket. "'Put her in the chicken-house,' answered the princess. "'Some day I'll have her fried for breakfast.' "'She looks rather tough, your highness,' said Nanda doubtfully. "'That is a base slander,' cried Bellina, struggling frantically in the colonel's arms. "'But the breed of chickens I come from is said to be poison to all princesses.' Then, remarked Languideer, I will not fry the hen, but keep her to lay eggs, and if she doesn't do her duty I'll have her drowned in the horse trough. End of chapter 6